Mata Farihoka is our Nuku 58. She started her working life as a nurse. Her mahi and health then saw her write the first stop smoking program for Māori women, and she led wahine and cervical screening programs on marae. She later found her niche in marae at Parihaka Pā and championed marae arts, raranga and karanga. In 2015, she won the Creative New Zealand Ngātohu Atākingi Ihaka Award, recognising her lifetime contribution to the arts. Martha's many passions have been combined in her mahi around death, as she champions kahu whakatere tupapaku, the tikanga Māori practices surrounding death and burial. In this episode, she tells us about her life's journey, what it was like to grow up with a strict mid-Victorian-minded auntie. She shares her experiences of birth and death in her whanau, and she tells us why she advocates for euthanasia and how we all need to be prepared to die. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Okay. Kia ora mata. Kei te pehi hoki. Kei te pai hoki ani. Thank you for inviting us here to your whare, uh, here in the Parihaka Papakainga. It has uh, been a very beautiful time spent with you already before we even hit the record button. And um, it's been very lovely to get to know you before we've actually even properly started the corridor. <laughs> so, tēnei te mihi kia koe. Can you please tell us a little bit about... Uh, who you are and, and, and where you're from. Well, today I'm known as Mata Farehoka. When I was born, I was given the name Mata Hurita Carol, and I was a Moanaroa. And uh, as I proceeded to go to school, um, the name Carol became the the name that was used all the time. And I had that name Carol right up until I came to Taranaki. Wow. And uh, Marta, everybody used to think that I gave that name to myself, <laughs> but I was lucky that the birth certificate uh, made that known to everybody that I was a Marta. Mm-hmm. And my name was Marta actually. <laughs> and I think my kids too felt the same way. They didn't know that my name was Marta. But that just goes to show you how important a name is. But that name Carol was given to be given to me by my auntie. Um, and that was to sort of signify that I came at the right time during the year, like at Christmas. Mm. Uh, but did I appreciate it as I got older? No. So uh, that's, that was me when I was born and brought up in a little place called Whakamarama in Tauranga. And that's up the up the Kaimais, at the base of the Kaimais towards Katikati. And uh, the, the life that I had there was absolutely embellished with everything a kid could ever want to learn to live a life in the bush. And we were known as the bush kids um, often. And my my mum and dad, they were known as um, Nana Bush and Kuro Bush. (laughs) 
uh, much to their disappointment, I guess, but that's what they were known as, and we were known as the bush kids. Mm. So if you were going up to the bush, it was going up to the Monaros who lived at Whakamarama. And I was brought up with, um, sad to say, not with all my brothers and sisters, because there were 14 of us. And when they all consequently left home, um, you know, the the younger ones became the older ones, and and they became your teachers. So all my older brothers and sisters were my teachers. And that's why you could afford to have big families, was my theory, because the, the, the older brothers and sisters would actually teach you. And so I totally um, thank my, especially my older sister, for giving me the knowledge that I have today about so many things. Mm. Um, so really, that, that, that was me in, in the early days. And then as uh, it was getting close to me to attending high school, my aunt, who gave me that name, decided that it was important that I go off to live with her. And she came and asked me to go and live with her. So at the age of 11, I went to live with her. And your aunt was quite different. <laughs> oh, indeed, sir. Um, so different from my mum. Um, my mum was so um, organic and my mum was, you know, she lived on what she could live on with her 14 children, whereas my aunt never had any children at all. And so I became the child who, who got everything and embellished with everything that I needed and wanted. Um, yeah, so at the age of 11, I went to live with her. And uh, was it the easiest transition? Probably not the easiest transition, but I knew I needed to transition because I was going to high school. And uh, she didn't want me to have some of the the ways that were the bush ways. Mm. And they, they had to change, you know, like um, gobbling your food or... Um, sitting at the table in a slovenly manner and sitting up straight mm. and using As I a, my yes, <laughs> using a, a butter knife for the butter and using a jam spoon for the jam. Yeah. I still do those things today, um, but lesser. Um, but those are the things that I, I learned, and they were very, very parkier, very parkier indeed. And did I enjoy that? Of course I did, because mm. I continued to be a Pākehā when I left school. And then I went to the South Island, planning to be a nurse, and uh, got to the School of Nursing in Dunedin, I mean, in Christchurch, and I went for a uniform fitting in Christchurch, and I just didn't like the uniform at all. So I said to my brother, I'm not going back to that school of nursing. I'm leaving. (laughs) And so I left. I left the nursing school and then went on to do some travelling around the South Island. And uh, strangely enough, ended up in Dunedin doing my nursing at that school of nursing. That um, before we get into the the story of nursing, because there's a, a great corridor that's coming with that part of your life. Um, having grown up with your auntie, who was, as you describe her, mid Victorian minded, um, there was this idea that you and I discussed around being a white Maori. Yes. And what does what does white Maori mean to you? Because it wasn't necessarily in reference to white colour. 
but white Māori as in having a very Pākehā mm. outlook on the world. Totally. My culture was, was totally Pākehā, totally white. And that came about because my auntie had married uh, a white man and uh, neither of them had any children, but he had a mother called Mary and Mary was of Dutch descent. And Mary said to me, um, there's no way that you can be a Māori. There's no place for Māori in this world. Wow. So this is Nana Mary who said this to me. And my aunt supported it in so many ways because she encouraged me to do things that were of Pākehā and removed, honestly, removed my accent. You know, when you're from the bush, you talk like a bush kid. <laughs> but as I um, proceeded into into high school, my first year to high school, by the time I'd started high school, honestly, I'd been practising to talk properly. And so I had managed just over in that sort of three or four weeks to acquire this sort of different um, accent and to speak slowly and to do these things that are very Pākehā orientated. And my auntie did them. And uh, using of the handkerchief, oh. sitting at the table with manners that were so mm. exquisite. And um, my family would say to me, and my our brother often called me, on. I was the Māori girl, you know, the white girl with the black asshole. <laughs> so that was his, his comment about me. And sure as eggs, I, that's exactly what it was, this white girl with a black asshole. But I, I thought that he was really rude to me in the first instance, <laughs> rather than it being a compliment. That's you know. not a very proper way to speak to a lady. <laughs> <laughs> or about a lady. No, no, no. Um, so that's that's how, how I got through that. And he continued to debadger me about being white. And even to the point where when she died, my auntie died. And uh, that teased me about, you know, there's no longer you can be this white white girl anymore. You know, you're, what's going to happen? anymore and so there was this teasing and bantering and obviously I, I, I didn't cope with it very well that I opposed my family even more but I did have a brother who was whangaita into the family and we stayed very very close and he and I today still are close, he lives in New Plymouth mm. and I live here at Parihaka and we still have this close relationship and a bond that we had when we were growing up together at the farm at Whakamana. So this time, this would have been, what, 50 years ago? Yeah. 70 now, so probably yeah. around 50, 60 years ago that this was your life. <laughs> I look at you, I look at you now, and I couldn't even imagine that that's what, that's the, the young upbringing that you would have once had. Mm. And how how long ago did you receive your moko kauai? I got that after... My husband died because in my state of rebellion, because as he saw that women were becoming uh, into this situation of being wearing a moko kauai, mm -hmm. he wanted that for me as well. But I didn't want it. I thought, no, 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 his sister got it. His friends got it. And he wanted me to be part of that. But in my... Um, Kinder, I suppose. Um, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to. 
And I knew that once he died, I would pursue it. Mm. But the interesting thing about it, when he did die, I thought, oh, yes, I better think about doing this and walk away now. <laughs> and went directly to the person that he had organised before his death. So oh, there we are. <laughs> but it was in your time, so but you still got the one up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the reason I ask is, I wanted to ask you, what do you think your auntie would think of you receiving moko kawai, given that her perspective of you at that young age, because when I look at you, it's not just moko kawai. You have, you know, there are moko on your on your arms and on your ears and on, you know, you're, you are wearing your whakapapa, you are wearing te ao Māori. You are a living, walking, breathing <laughs> expression of your Māori tanga. And I'm just curious to think what your auntie might have thought had she still been here at this time. She probably would have banned me from going wow. into the house. She would have mm. probably said, oh, you can't come into my house with those marks on your body. She didn't like tattoos on people anyway. Mm. You know, she that was the kind of person she was. But with regards to things Māori here, now here's an interesting thought, is that when she was growing up, she at the age of 17 was totally abandoned by her mother and father, well, especially her father. Mm. And uh, she became a rebel herself in many ways and became that anti-mum and dad and went to, well, stayed working for this Pākehā whānau that Pākehā fired her, made her the white girl. Mm. And she became that white woman because... She didn't have a family to fall back on. I had a formal family to fall back on, but she didn't. And her father accused of being hapu to the to the farmer. And uh, to this day, I don't think she ever was hapu to the farmer because we had the corridor about, you know, her her living at the house and working as a farmhand on the farm. Um, but she certainly didn't portray herself as a person that would get into bed with that man anyway um, so you know she she was she was telling the truth to me I, I, I believe and I just thought well her father lost out on a really wonderful woman because she taught me ethics you know they might have been white ethics but they were ethics <laughs> and it made me that strong person too mm. and so we we go on to your career in the health sector and your mahi as a nurse and some of the some of the milestones that you had um, during your time in health was around cervical screening and introducing cervical screening on the marae, mm. and then writing the first smoking cessation program for. Mm. Is it, was it specifically for wahine Māori or was it Aye. for Māori? Aye. So specifically for wahine Māori, what drove you to do those? Specifically those things around the smoking cessation program and around our cervical screening programs. Maybe I'll go back a step or two and remind me where I should take it because I will get lost. (laughs) I'll bring you back. (laughs) Um, So in my youth, my auntie ensured that I was on the track to becoming a nurse Mm. and I was the chair of the Junior Red Cross for about five, six years. And so that held me instead to, to you know, following humanitarian activities around the world and in Aotearoa and doing training. 
And then uh, I went and did my St. John's training as well, uh, to the point where I got the Grand Priory Award and went to the uh, um, Governor-General's house to receive that. So those were the two things that led me to becoming that nurse. And whilst becoming that nurse, I learned so much about being Māori as a nurse. What I did learn was in my nursing training, I had a German teaching me how to be Māori. Wow. So she was responsible for the culture within our nursing training program. And I thought, this picture's quite wrong. <laughs> Just a little bit backwards. <laughs> yeah, this picture's quite wrong. German woman trying to teach me about culture. And here I was, a Māori within within the nursing school. And there weren't many of us Māori in Dunedin. And then, you know, after sort of all of that having an impact on my life, I learned that Māori health were at its lowest and it's never, ever in my history of living got to where it's as equal to Pākehā. So I learned all of this while I was nursing. And then I did some research on, uh, as a public health nurse, I did some research on what we needed to do to build equity and uh, capability and all of those things amongst us as Māori. And uh, decided that we needed to do some things that were going to uplift Māori. And, you know, one of the things that I, I found really exciting about doing this is I didn't think that I had the skills to do that amongst Māori because I'd come from this real Pākehā background mm. of nursing and thought, well, yeah, will I be accepted within a Māori community? But I found I was because I was human. I looked Māori, I sounded Māori, and um, I was a nurse, so those things got me through. And when I started doing these things in Taranaki, I found that there was a bit of respect and honouring going on that made it really wonderful to be part of a community. And uh, so in Opanaki here, um, met with opposition from the GP. He just thought I was wrong in what I was doing, like getting Māori women to... To, to a clinic, so just only Māori woman. He said it's wrong. I need to report you to the to the um, chairman of the medical board. Oh and the chairman of the medical board happened to be Tony Ruakere, who was a Māori, so <laughs> he could report me as much as he wanted. So I quickly rang Tony after learning that he was that person. Is don't worry about it. We'll just carry on with what you're doing. <laughs> just keep going. Yeah, just keep going. And so. You know, what I found with um, the, the system just didn't want Māori to get anywhere. And um, I, I was born a rebel, you know. Uh, I think I still am a rebel in mm. so many ways because you only have to see the deficit and you think, oh, I want to I want to get that right. So I saw that with um, cervical cancer and then I knew, I knew that we could um, do something about cervical cancer because it's one of the diseases that you can prevent. Mm. And uh, then I also knew that cervical smear taking was really, I did the training for that as well. And what I did do was I not only ran a Māori clinic in Opanaki, but I also ran a Māori clinic out at Waimarae and had uh, one of our beautiful um, Hannah Jackson sister come down and, and share that time with us at Waimarae. But it was lovely at that time in our lives you know, Māori women were out there looking for the best for, for especially Māori women because we were the leaders. Mm. We were the leaders for our children. 
Um, and I think we just left men for dust, really, and went ahead and did things for, for, for Māori, for our children and for Māori women. Now, what was the other thing that I... <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting so immersed in your story. I do I do remember. Don't worry. I, before I ask you about the smoking, I just wanted to ask you do you, do you know how many Maori women you would have seen come through those clinics? Hundreds, thousands? Oh, look, hundreds, hundreds. Yeah. But this is how I did it, and they wanted they want to know now how to do these clinics. So I says, well, back in the day, this is what I did. Went to the boss, so went out to Oanui, organised with the boss there to. Um, smear all of the Māori women in his unit. He said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Because I says I want to promote Māori health. Mm. And in our community, I can be helping Māori. And I says, this is how I want to operate it. So I'll take eight women at a time from the job. And uh, they all come down to the clinic. And I put on a kai and tell jokes, have a laugh. <laughs> And when I've got them settled, then I'm in there with the doctor. <laughs> Once I've sucked them all in. <laughs> Leave them there, have a cordial. So this is, you can hear the laughter mm. going on out in the waiting room. And to me and the doctor, it was like, well, isn't that just so awesome that we can get our people together? Mm. You know, and it was a subject that was really taboo. People didn't want to talk about it. But here you are in a room full of Māori women. They're talking about cervical smears. Mm. And that's how we got to the empire. And and it worked. Just yes, so it, it did. <laughs> and so the the smoking cessation, was that a part of that same Fokaro around supporting, empowering, helping our Wahine Māori to have better orangatanga? Absolutely. Well it wasn't really. I just saw the number of heart attacks that people were having and, you know, having worked in the hospital mm. and hadn't had recognised that um, heart disease could be helped, you know, reduced if we stop smoking. We the people stop smoking. And more importantly, it was about Māori women because Māori women were the ones that had the highest uh, account of cervical cancer. Uh, breast cancer. Um, I'm not too sure about the lung cancer, but the cancers amongst Māori women were greater than amongst Māori men. Mm. And, and Māori featured in that uh, inequity and in the in the whole process. And so I'm going right. Who do I and who do I attack? And so I I conjure up this plan, and I think well this is the way I do it. And because I worked in I didn't work in a medical model. I, I just didn't do things the way they wanted me to do it. And I'm so glad I, I didn't do it like that. So I went to my boss and I says, oh, Margaret, I've got this problem. I need to sort it out and hear the statistics. You know, this is Māori women, Māori men, children, admissions to hospital, all Māori, and uh, looked at smoking as as the issues amongst the, the Māori people. And by that time, jury had published some some information as well. So I had all this to attack. Um, well, I wasn't going to attack her. I was going to confront her. And uh, produced her. Just take her for lunch and get her laughing. And yeah. Then... <laughs> and do you know what? I didn't have to do much at all. Mm. She says, I understand the trends amongst Māori health. So I think, what you're doing is brilliant. So I wrote the Stop Smoking programme. And what it offered, I didn't have any money, 
but I asked the boss how to go about, you know, how we could fund it. And so we put together some funding to pay for the food and and what else. There wasn't much that we paid for anyway. But we held it at Parikak here, our first one, we held it here. And what it was to do was, wasn't to look at tobacco smoking in the first place. It was to look at our tēnana and to look at how we fed our tēnana and how we were going to alter our tēnana once we started looking at stop smoking. Mm. And uh, the whole idea about stop smoking was to improve our health amongst um, Māori women, um, men uh, and children. So that's how important it was. The health department was right behind me. I didn't have any barriers. But what we offered them was that um, um, because that's what we did. We charged, I think it was $600 for the fees, for the attendance for the whole week because it was a live-in program. Mm. But those who had jobs were were welcome to go back to work um, after they'd done a few days in the program. And uh, so after working with their employees, employers, we asked that they give um, pay for their, their fees. And so we had over 75% uh, at the six-month mark still on smoke-free. Wow. So Paparangi Red said all we had to achieve was a 65%. We did 75%. But sadly, at the end of the year, I think we only did 62%, which was still a high number mm. of non-smoking in the programme. And I guess that same whakaaro that you have earlier around, you know, our wahine Māori, our indigenous wahine being the leaders of change within their whānau. And while you had that 62%, that 62% then went on to influence whoever else they came into contact with, including their tamariki, their tāne, their mokupuna. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, wow. We, we've talked a bit about Parihakapa and we've talked about some of the initiatives that you've had here. And you live here in the Papakainga. I live in a Papakainga. Mm. <laughs> I know what it's like to live in a Papakainga. <laughs> some days it's absolutely fabulous. Some days it can be quite stressful. <laughs> what has it been like for you living in this pa? And what is it like for you today having having the experience of having lived here for the amount of time you have? Mm, I, th- I, I think I've benefited uh, because I married uh, a well-known man from here, Turu Kōrere Whareoka. Not only did I have one child, that was the only expectation that I would have one child in, but I had two more. So we produced three children for Parihaka and those three children still are here today mm. doing the work on the path. Um, so, you know, it was to my advantage that I did marry someone like him and then went on to have these children. But one of the things, oh, and then became the kaitiaki of the, the meeting house, and I'm still the kaitiaki today. That's 33 years down the track. Wow. So I think, you know, in my kaitiaka tanga, I've managed to do really well. Questions are, how did I get there? Number one is to be honest, truthful. If you don't know what it is, what things are, you know, ask the questions. Never bullshit about it, you know. Never lie about the money. If you spent the money, what have you spent the money on? <laughs> Just see. <laughs> and if you're going to spend money, tell them how much you're going to spend on it. <laughs> um, 
And at the end of the day, it's all about the the kaupapa that Te Whitianto who said here. And for me, in my heart of hearts, this is what I believe it is. And I use that, um, it's a biblical saying, but then it's got the right content and context as well. And it's glory to God on high, peace on earth, and goodwill to all mankind. Mm. So... Auntie Marge said to me, you know, that's what was rep- represented on the three feathers of Te Atiawa. And I believed it. So when you think of that last one, it says, glory to God and peace on earth, goodwill to all mankind. Is, that is such a big um, energy and effort user that um, sometimes it's not always easy to be kind to people on this earth. But you do. You find you find a way to to manage it, and I think that's what I've come with, or that's what I've ended up with, at Parihaka. And been here for thirty three years. My husband's been gone twelve years. I think I think at the end of the day, it's about um, who you are too, what you've become. Um, uh, and a lot of people believe, not not. I was just going to say my generosity, but I don't think I'm that blooming generous. <laughs> but I, I think I'm giving, I'm fair, um, and I'll ensure that whatever Tafiti and Tohu set out, out for us to do is I'll I'll teach it to my children and my mokopuna. Mm. And looking at the succession planning going on here already, you know, how do we carry Pariaka into the future? So my mokopunas, you know, they're born to it. Mm. Yeah, and just in, you know, just in our arrival here today, um, and the whakatau that you gave us, having your mokapuna sit at your yeah. feet to listen and learn that is so important. So important, eh? Some yeah. things that we often forget, especially in this very fast-paced world, when we don't necessarily have time to teach our tamariki mm. and our mokapuna mm. these things. Um, but forcing them to sit at our feet... Absolutely, is um is the way. If you see a, um, on Māori television, uh, my husband's there in one of the um, advertisements, I think, and on his crooked stick is our three-year-old son, and that's where our boy was taught from from that stick mm. and sit in front of his father all the time that he went to places. So, you know, we, we've we've been taught by the best. And when asked, you know, how you get your children to come back to Parihaka, um, you've got to bring them up, knowing that they've got to come back. You can't go, oh, go and, uh, and uh, you know, experience the world and then come back and bugger off. You go and you come back, mm. you know, yeah, because this is home is where you've got to be, mm. regardless. Is Papakainga living the way that we need to be moving forward? Oh, that's such a difficult question because is Papa Kainga living today the way that they lived yesteryear? Because if I think if it was yesteryear, we don't do enough Papa Kainga stuff. Mm. And that is we're not sharing. We don't share here because everybody lives in the insular spaces and and the only time we share is tangi and on the 18th and 19th. Mm. So we have those opportunities to share. But if I, if I could sort of look at where I believe that it was with our people, when you hear the stories of this, the streets being filled with houses here, 
and those um, Korean kōro sitting outside their houses and people walking by and going, kia ora, haramai, haramai, get a cup of tea. You know, that kind of thing. We don't we don't emulate that at all. Mm. So we've we've got a culture that we we need to probably look at it a little bit differently. Because we still live, I guess the, the the way of looking at that is we while we might live physically in a Māori context, we still live in a Pākehā world we view in the way that we're living. I understand that too. I remember my grandmother telling me how, um, you know, the different the different whare um, in the Papakainga one would have, um, you know, would grow different types of kai and they'd yeah. share it amongst the whanas that everyone would have all of the kai. Yeah. <laughs> different yeah. whanau would grow a specific kai and, and that's how they would share it. And, uh, yeah, interesting to think that while the the idea is very, oh, you know, where we see where we we see it reflected when we look at it, but it's not necessarily mm. reflected in how we live. Yeah, I think sometimes we we misinterpret things mm. in regards to being Maori. You know, I'd love to think that we were Maori, and I think that if we we were typically Maori, we'd we'd be gathering for occasions that are not those ones that you're forced to come together on. Mm. You like tangi. Not just a tangi. Yeah. And uh, like the 18th and 19th years, like I, I started having sort of a street kai here. I was, come on, let's invite everybody to the street and have it outside. Um, and then a kind of a couple of times it worked, but then it stopped. And and I think things stop because they don't carry all the sort of the essential um, ideas that you, mm. you first came with so they get lost because you don't get the same feeling so I can go along and conjure up all these neat ideas and then it'll go flat because I no longer follow the it, well it no longer follows the concept the original concept I want to talk to you about tangi and tangihanga and death but before we talk about the end we should talk about the beginning um, and that's around birth yeah <laughs> your Tamariki, those those parihaka tamariki that you brought into this world. Mm. <laughs> I 18. yeah, I know that you were telling me that um, you know, even though you have a have worked in the medical profession, have been a nurse, have worked in the health sector, that you wanted to uh, have muka ties on your pepe when they mm. were born, and we're basically told you couldn't. Mm. I assume you still did, because mm. there's that rebel in you. But <laughs> but around our, our birthing practices, and I've spoken about our birthing practices with a couple of other wahine, um, but I'm really interested to know your, your perspective and your whakaro mm. and, and where it comes from and your sense of things. Yeah, so um, birthing is something that we, we we failed to do a good job with, and my birthing experiences weren't weren't fabulous. I suppose one was, but, you know, my first one was so terrible that I wanted to put the baby back and, you know, if that's an experience to be remembered, who wants to remember the same way, though. No. Yeah. And so I had older children and I came to nurse in Taranaki and when um, I came to Taranaki, my husband was married. My husband was into revitalising whatever he could he wanted revitalised. Mm. So I thought, well, why not? Because, you know, we're seeking to be Māori and let's do what we can do to be Māori. And one of those was that birthing, tikanga around birthing, 
should be Māori for us. And uh, when we went to the specialist, because they had to go into the specialist because it's too old to have a baby at home, but we fought knives and tongs to have a baby at home. And he agreed to it long as so I had the right midwife with me, so mm-hmm. we had the right midwife. But um, prior to all of that happening, I, along with, you know, um, my husband argued the point that we wanted a whole lot of things done in a te Māori way and that we didn't want any Pākehā intervention at all. And one was the, the muka. And uh, he said to me, Dr. Brooks said to me, oh, look, I tell you what, we'll, we'll meet you halfway. How about you bring the ties in and we'll put them through the steriliser? And I thought, well, you know, it's a step in the right direction. Mm. So I agreed that we'd do that. So we had these sterile ties ready for the baby to arrive. And of course, we were going to have a natural birth. But did Marta have a natural birth? No, Marta didn't. So we had to have an intervention. Um, well, the consequent two had subsequent two, uh, same way, all Caesars. So three Caesars. And, but by the time we'd got to the second baby um, and discussing with Dr. Brooks on a, on a deeper level, he says, oh, I says, do you know this, this mucker? It's totally, um, um, what's he, what do you call it? Well, it's got its own... It's clean. Yeah, it's, it's totally its own clean. It's right. it contains sterile. this <laughs> healing property. And, it, and uh, you know, for me, when you put it through the steriliser, you kill it all. Mm-hmm. And so he, he agreed that we would make the ties. And I said, we want to make the ties at the time of the birth of the baby. We don't wait, make it a long time before we had. And so what happened, and we found with all the consequent babies that we had, all of our babies' pitos fell off really, really early. Mm. So these last ones, the twins, four days. My baby was four days. Yeah, four days. And, you know, that was because it was so fresh out of the muka and just tied. I arrived late. I I wasn't there for the first muka tie on that mukapuna. Mm-hmm. Um, but I arrived, you know, a bit late and was able to make the ties and then we tied the babies. But it just goes to show that, uh, you know, the fresher the muka is, the better the the, the rongo is on it mm-hmm. at that particular time. So as, I, as we talk about muka and we talk about harakeke and we talk about its place and our varying practices, um, it does take me to the corridor around death. And it takes me to some corridor that I only really got to understand when I learned more about you and your mahi. And uh, as I understand it, there's a practice here that you are very, I don't know whether you started it or whether you revived it or whether you're just the person who <laughs> is in charge of it. But the practice here around dying is that if you die in the pa. You don't need to go anywhere else. Everything happens here. That embalming from a Pākehā sense is not needed because there is a Tao Māori way of preserving tūpāpaku in the time that we need them here with us to grieve them before we bury them. And that the whānau here also, uh, through that beautiful harakeke, weave mahi a casket or a... Mm. a um, 
What are they called? What's the ingwa for it? Because it's oh, not casket. Well, What's the ingwa Māori um, for it? Kōpaki. Kōpaki. Yeah, so we, we weave a whāraki like mat. For the for the two papaku to lay in, so I would I would love because I'm fascinated about this. Oh, Taylor's next to me, and oh, she's fascinated. About this. <laughs> I don't even have to look at her to know she is, which tells me that anyone who's listening is going to be very fascinated about this. Yeah. Could you tell me where did this idea of reclaiming the ancestral practice of looking after our own two papaku from the moment they die? To the moment we put them, return them back to Papa Tuanuku. When did that come about? How did that come about? And what is that process? Because Man, you didn't ask. Uh, oh, yeah, I don't. Say. I don't. Only one easy yeah. as question. <laughs> <laughs> can I just take us back to the birthing first, so that I can finish that part yes. of and part where my husband was instrumental in bringing back what he called it the Eritanga. and so the Eritanga was uh, taking our mukapuna and putting them into the river early hours of the morning within 10 days of the birth. And uh, that process we still have today. And my son and his uncle carry on with that for our family. But the thing is, is how do we, how do we ensure that, you know, that corridor with birthing is, is real? Um, So I hear others talking that it's not only Eritanga, it's it's pretty, whatever they've got it named as, but is this practice sufficient to keep it going and to revive it into the future? So that's the that's the corridor that you can take away with this as mm. well as where, where do you take it. So there's a word that I coined with um, birthing, and that's the word deathing, because we don't have... I went to a professor and I said, hey, Prof, can you tell me how I'm to find a word that's going to sort of suit this, you know, to be synonymous. How, how do I find a word? And I says, I've got a word, but I, I don't know how you get around this Pākehā language thing. <laughs> and he says, well, what is it? And I says, it's the word deathing. He said, well, I didn't see anything wrong, wrong with the word deathing. If you've got birthing, you can have deathing. Mm. And these are how words evolve, he says. So let's use the word deathing. So we've coined this word deathing to be synonymous with, with, with birthing because we don't have a, a word that's suitable. But anyway, this, this whole deathing thing came, came about from a wānanga that was held in 1986 at Owai and Auntie Ina got up to talk about how they dealt with their two pāpaku in their time. And because my husband and I were so keen on bringing back whatever tikaka we could, um, we listened to that story and carried it through. And then 2003, my sister came to live with us and she died here at Pariaka. And we thought, oh my God, you know, she don't want to be going to the undertaker, because we talked about it as well. She doesn't want to be going to the undertaker. Mm-hmm. And um, But she was happy to be done at home. And so the doctor says, oh, that's all good. Organised for her to be done at home. And then my kids went over to Altham to get a coffin for her because she wanted a coffin. And then she said things like, oh... Just give me a purple lining. And uh, I thought, God, where are you going to get purple lining? That's not expensive. So the kids came home with this fleece, you know, purple fleece. Well, it was really, really beautiful. But, you know, it was really hot. And you could feel the heat um, when you were, you know, 
caring, putting her into it. But anyway, long story short, um, she she was our really first tawira, and we learnt so much around her her death and her her burial. And my husband says, "Well, I, I don't I don't I don't want to, I don't want to go to the undertakers because I told him what I was." had experience as a public health nurse. You went to learn how to do work in an undertaker. So he was not happy that he had to have these needles put in because he opposed needles. Mm. And anyway, he says, I'm not going. I'm not going to the undertaker. So you keep me home. So I thought, mm, okay, how am I going to do this? His sister's a nurse. His, his nephews and nephews are very strong-minded people in the community and how was I going to do this? And I thought, oh, well, come on, Marta, rise up. <laughs> Where's that rebel in Yes. <laughs> and, of course, you know, it did rise and he decided that he was going to call his kids home. So we called all the kids home from all over New Zealand. They came home for a hui and the hui was set around how his tangi was going to happen. So he had the weavers, he had the kaikaranga, he had the people who was going to cook for his, <laughs> cook for his tangi. So he wanted all organised, you mm-hmm. know. And it was, uh, of course, I added to those ideas. But the thing was, he, it was he was going to be the first tawira, and uh, got got uh, the um, manuka, you know, he organised all of this to be done. And uh, once that was all done, obviously he he was quite content. So six months passed and he he, he died. And the kids, um, when they came back, honestly, they just got to got to work and did all the all the um, you know the work. But I suppose there's all that wider level I haven't talked about either because when I knew that he was getting really really low, I just said to the kids, "Leave your jobs, come home because he's not going to be here much." much longer and sure enough he was only here with us for a few days and um, and then left and then the kids were very quick to assume the roles that they were given to do um, and I tell you what it's one of the best tummies we ever had it's like no arguments no you know everybody just uh, and I just sat there being the pauwaru um, and uh, you know this it was just so beautiful to see him wrapped in whāraki and because uh, um, we continue to do it and we've done 132 barbecue now wow. which is uh, a big so I've done them from Dunedin to North Auckland to Te Marae um, and did I start it? No, my husband did really we were his tools that that created that uh, tikanga for the, the, and we call it the kahu whakatere tu pāpuku. But you've carried it on and you've yeah. helped to revive it in the sense that, I mean, he's he has been gone 12 years now yeah. and, and it's been an opportunity for you to take up that mantle. Well, absolutely. My, my pātai is, you know, do we, um, from a very practical perspective, once somebody passes away, is it that we bathe them in, in certain rungwa that helps to keep their bodies however they need to be for the time that we have them over tangihanga? Or do their bodies just deal with that and cope with that on their own? Good question. And it's a very good question because really at the end of the day, you know that karanga says haere atura? Mm. Yeah. 
Why don't you say hi to her today? <laughs> because I don't want them to go anywhere. Mm. I don't want their wairua to go anywhere but to stay with them. And uh, so I do, I ask that they're worried with. And I, before they die, I say to them, this is what's going to happen. You are going to take responsibility for your tupapaku. Not the people, but you, okay? So we've gone through this corridor that gets them to where they're going to pass over. And when they do pass over, and these are the behaviours that I require of you throughout your whole tangi. And I'm sure it's it's an easier process. It used to be really difficult because we really didn't have any idea of what commands we could make over the wairua. And as I've gone on on this journey, what I found is that I can command that wairua to be caring, responsible for its tinana until it's in the hole. Mm. So the last one I did was about five weeks ago. No, sorry, probably eight weeks ago. I went up to Te Maranui to do her an amazing, amazing process because I think I shocked everybody. I arrived up there kind of midnight-ish and then we got to start making the, 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 the kahu for her at midnight and people going, oh, so far, what time do we go to bed? And I said, oh, no, we don't go to bed. <laughs> we stay awake all night and we prepare this whole unit for her. Mm. And we go to bed after we've put her into this unit and we've done the karakira over her and then you can go to bed after that. And it was like such a shock because nobody expected that at all. But you know, the thing is the wairua works in so many different ways and the whole time that we were there, you know, I'd never ever made... The handles in half an hour, not never ever have I ever done that. But you know, the spirit that we were working with said, Martin, you can do it. So, what we did, I lined up these people, and I don't usually have these wonderful people, lined these people up who were stripping and passing me the, the muka as we were going. And honestly, of course, half an hour, I can twist for a half an hour and made these beautiful rope. And just in case people are not familiar with harakeke terms, they were stripping the harakeke, not yes. stripping the kaka. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> and so we wrap them in the... So we make fadiki, uh, And the fadiki that um, my husband always talked about was a fadiki to go under them, one that's been used. Mm. Um, you don't have to have a brand new one to put underneath them. But, you know, historically, he said, that there are a lot of old whareke that come with a, a lot of wairua that's been walked on and, you know, people have laid on them and and kapakurukuru, so they're broken and they can be used. And those are the ones that you use so that they're not thrown away, but they're used purposely. And then the next one that we make is, is, is the green one that's done on the fresh that day. And then... Um, and then there's another whāraki that's made to go for the upoko. Mm. So there's three whāraki that are made. And then there's a waka that's like a ladder. It's got five rungs. And uh, then it's got this, these beautiful handmade ropes um, for handles. And then it's even got some drops to drop down into the, the, the hole. And um, when it's all lashed together, it is totally beautiful. So if you could just imagine 
there's a there's a sort of a ladder, and then there's this uh, fadiki that's put on it. Then the two papakus wrapped in the fadiki, and honestly, I don't invite anybody to put any plastic things and people who want to wear shoes to the grave and all of those things. So gradually, all of those things are going. So we don't put. We, we have to say we're feeding Papa Tuanuku. Mm. We're not going to be feeding rubbish to Papa Tuanuku. So plastics, you have to think about it. And through this whole process, you have to change people's minds too, that, you know, oh, we want them dressed in the suit. No, no, no. It's not cotton. It's not linen. We're not putting it in, on them. And so we've, you know, the change of the mindset in our people, no no mattresses, n- nothing like that. So as we're dressing them, we look for those garments that, that are going to be easily decomposed in Papatunuka. Mm, so natural fibres. Oh, absolutely. Cottons, those types of things. Mm. Yeah, so I tell them, go and get me a sheet. Go and get me a cotton sheet. And so that's what we invariably do now is put them into a cotton sheet, wrap them up. And line the sheet with um, with uh, kawa kawa, and we crush the kawa kawa so it produces the oil. And and I don't have a particular oil now that I use on the tupapaku, and I don't necessarily wash the tupapaku as well. If I can sense that the tupapaku has been taken care of, I don't do that. Mm. I see no sense, totally no sense but to oil the tupapaku to preserve it. So the oil, what the oil does do, it stops the air entering the body and it stops the air from going out of the body as well. Because you know in decomposition that's what happens. Air enters and air goes out. Hmm. And so that's all you have to do is to reduce that. Your spirituality, your wairuatanga, is very strong. And um, I know that in 2000 you had a... I should probably talk into the microphone, probably be a bit easier. Um, your wairuatanga is very strong and your spirituality is very strong. And I know that in 2000 you had a car accident. And yeah. as, a, as a part of that you were on life support and they turned off the machine. And, I mean, you're still sitting here in front of me, so they turned off the machine and you kept breathing. In the in the story of you having turned, or having them turned off the machine and you continuing to breathe, you experienced what many of us kind of say is, oh, you know, you did you see the light? Yeah. Did you go to the light? And in your experience, you did see light. Can you do you remember a lot of that feeling that that moment that time, or do you just really remember light? What I there are a lot of things that I remember because um, fortunately, unfortunately, as the case might be, as um, near death experiences happen to a lot of people. Mm. And um, I was really impressed that they happened to me because I never thought that things like that would ever, ever happen to me because if there was a competition in our family as who was going to be the most wairua person in our family, it wasn't me. It was definitely my older sister. And then when my older sister died, I'm thinking, well, you know, I wonder where this gift is going to go to. Certainly isn't me because I've got an older sister, I've got older brothers. Mm. 
And, you know, after that car accident, of course, not only did I see the light, at the, and it's a light, not at the end of the tunnel, but it's a light like a grey cloud, and in the middle there, there's just this this little glimmer of, of light, and it just mm. sits there. And it's almost like you know that you're going to go, but who the hell's going to come and get you, you know? And uh, I often thought about that, who was going to come and get me, and I had an argument in one of my near-death experiences with my father who arrived, and I says, where's my mother? And he says, she's not coming. I says, well, I want mum. <laughs> I don't want you. But I knew in my own thinking, in my unconscious state, mm. that I wasn't going to die. Mm. So I knew my mother, if my mother had come, I would have been gone. But it was my father who came. Mm. So that was one of the occasions. Then there were three occasions um, that I had a near-death experience. And then the other one was I was given to given to die. And so I thought, oh, you know, in me, this is what I wanted to do. So I, and it happens in the blink of an eyelid. And you just go places. So I went down to my family down the South Island, um, down to um, uh, Nelson, went down there. They didn't want me there. And it was like, no, no, go. So I went over to Tauranga and I thought, oh, yeah, you fellas, you fellas will take me up. No, nobody would take me in Tauranga as well. And then I um, went over to, over to Ngāti Tehinga, over to the East Coast, uh, West Coast, and um, thought, oh, yeah, yeah, this, my twins are buried there, so they'll take me there. But no, they didn't. And then I thought, well, there's only Parihaka to come back to. So I came back to Parihaka. You know, it's like a story that you sort of create in your own mind, I suppose. Mm. But this is what happened in, in that state. So I go to Tanihu and there's a lady, there's an old lady standing standing there. And, and I know this coat. Man, if I see this coat again, I'll be able to say, you know, there's a message there for you. But I haven't seen that lady in that coat yet to give her the message that was given to me by the, the old people on the other side. But anyway, um, I get there and she goes... You can see we've already got a two papaku here, and I'm going. So what? There's <laughs> another one coming. <laughs> and then um, I, they said no. The old lady said no. Then I went over to Toroa Nui, and the old man, man, I, I just know this old man. He's never ever left my mind, my thinking. He's never ever. You know how memories fade. Mm. He has never faded, never. And it's almost like. The psychologist telling you to relive those memories. If you want those memories to live, you've got to relive them frequently. So he said to me, you go, not here. And I, Tota Paipa was the only place. And up there, there was the woman there, she was alive, Frida. And uh, I said, Frida, I want to die. I want to come here. (laughs) She goes, fuck off. You get back. And that's what she said to me. And I came alive, you know. It was like, wow, these things just happen ever so quickly. But those those near-death experiences kind of create another pathway for you. And in fact, they actually strengthen your pathway 
and two, learning about yourself and the spiritual world. Mm. And so with that, what pathway did it strengthen for you? Uh, for me, it was like, here, I never wove a whareke, I mean, never wove a kōrawai in my life. I came back after death, didn't go and learn from nobody, but I made a kōrawai. And I thought, oh, well, I'll make another one. So I gave that kōrawai away. And then I've never made another one. (laughs) (laughs) So those things, and I thought, well, you know, that was something that I'd learnt from the spirit world, knowing that you can be gifted from the spirit world. Because I kind of, you know, didn't totally believe Mm. that the spirit world could give you the guidance, but... That was my teaching that it could give me the guidance. But you know, it also taught me to be a stronger woman um, here on earth. Yeah, very strong. Mm. It, it helped me stand, stand for things, Māori, stand for things, Parihaka, stand for things that were um, wahine driven. In the, in the discussion around death <laughs> of recent times, there's been discussion across Aotearoa around euthanasia. And I know that you are an advocate for euthanasia. And I read, I think it might have been something that you had either said to someone else or there was korero around a traditional practice of euthanasia and that our tupuna, and please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm literally pulling from my memory It's a good memory. (laughs) (laughs) That our... That our tupuna had a practice around euthanasia and that if you were dying to speed up that process, they would leave you out in the elements. And I don't know whether I've just dreamed that up in my head because I was like, gee, that sounds stinkers. <laughs> that sounds pretty mean. <laughs> or whether I've read that that's something you said or whether I, I don't know where that's come from. I can't attribute that to anyone in particular. I'd like to say that's what you said if that was what I read. But um, is, that, is, that something that had hap- is that something that you're aware of that happened? Absolutely. And it was me that's Oh, God, fine. Okay, cool. <laughs> And I'll continue to say it. And it's all part of our research. So mm. before we went into doing these things, you know, my husband did a lot of research. And he worked at Te Papa for um, three years, so he had the advantage of um, learning from all the archives. And mm. that was one of the things that he, he learned, that in former times, our, and especially chiefly lines, and you know very well that our two papaku were never left inside the whare to die. It was a tapu thing to have them die in the house. I mean, we don't talk about it often enough to know that that's what it was. Mm. So what they were given to do was to go outside and onto the maho, so outside the whare and left there to die. If that and, and what I equated it to was a similarity between euthanasia and uh, our practices. So the practice was put the tupapaku outside, allow the tupapaku to die outside. Should the tupapaku fail to die in a short time, then they were built a, a whare mati. So that's my understanding where the kōrero whare mate came from. So out on the maho, I mean outside on the atea, the whare mate was built there. So it was a temporary erected uh, whare. And it was 
it was entwined in such a way so that after the tupapaku was taken, the whare, there was only one string that you, you pulled and it imploded. Amazing, eh? Mm. That this building, well, it's not a building, it's only a, a very loosely made mm. cover. So it imploded and then they could burn it. And uh, so we learned from, from that that our ancestors did do that. And to me, I could equate it to euthanasia because you're making a choice about how you die. The other thing when you put the two papuku outside then in my teachings is about making sure that we don't feed the two papuku because if we give the two papuku food, then the two papuku has to continue to live. Mm. So it's quite wrong to keep on feeding them. And it's very difficult for many, many family members to stop feeding their loved ones. And uh, to the point, I'll go home. I won't stay around for that supapaku to pass over because if the family's choice chosen to feed them, then they haven't chosen to let them go. And if you have a look at our historical accounts, give them water and that's enough to keep them, you know, not alive, but it's enough to keep them going until they do pass over. And it's a it's a really hard corridor to receive because you equate feeding them with love, and that you. As, as, as I'd need to sort of um, question whether it is love, you know, mm. and whether our tupuna were actually far more knowledge than that, because that interpretation to me is is not love at all. Love to me, if when someone's dying, is to let them go freely, peacefully, and in the least, pain, least painful state. So if you're going to keep them alive by feeding them, by exercising, um, you know, keeping them alive with pain-free medication mm. instead of letting them go, because that's why I still believe that we're confused about the state of uh, that, that state that we talk about, you know, when we're passing over. We don't understand. Well, I think I, I understand it a lot, but a lot of us don't. Mm. And when I'm talking to families about letting go and about the state the body is in, doesn't matter how I explain that. Um, the least food that's in the body will reduce the amount of decomposition because that's what the biggest thing is when people die is that their, their gut fills up and when they die, when decomposition starts, then it starts becoming aerated. So the gas inside the stomach is what creates the swelling up of the tupapaku. So the least amount of food that you put into the tupapaku makes a lot of sense. Our ancestors had it right. Mm. And you just let it have water. And you know you don't have to empty the mummy bag out. You don't have to empty the poo bag out at all because it's all done. Mm. The other part I had around that was um, the difference between burying and cremation. And was there a, or do you know of, and maybe this is iwi related, that different iwi would have had different practices, but do you know whether the preference was 
to bury or to cremate because that's a lot of okay. there's a lot of raru that happens around oh. that nowadays where people say no you have to bury you have to there's no cremation that's not how we do it well, I'm just personally interested in that. Quarter. I have a personal take on it because I don't have any facts. Mm. I don't know. I've researched enough to try and find and other researchers who have and they've never found where where cremation was actually an event that actually took place. But what we do know is that the whare mate, um, where the tupapaku laid was burnt and that's the only and the closest I can ever find in in history to something being burnt. And you know as Māori we we look at these things um, that are naturally given to us we say don't burn this, don't burn, don't burn and yet at the end of the day we have to do something about it and that's what we started doing was burning burning things that belong to the Tupapaku. And then we got to the stage where we were going, holy crap, you can't burn things that belong to the Tupapaku, it's half plastic. Mm. And so we had to then again investigate how best we were going to manage that. And then we decided, oh, bugger this, let's just use water. So water is what we use now as like, Let's do the karakia with the water. And so often I'm my son, he says, no, mum, we'll just use, we'll just use water. We get the hose out, we spray everything down with the water, do the karakia. And it's still meaningful. Mm. Mm. So we've had to adjust our practices to fit with each sort of evidential element of this process. Mm. We've had to adjust it. I could talk to you about this all day. <laughs> but, but, um, I, I do. I when um, I did a tupapaku and they said to me she's for cremation. And in one sense, I thought, oh hallelujah, she's for cremation, because I really wanted to trial how long it would take me to manage a tupapaku for a cremation, mm. because you do things quite differently, very very differently. There's no handles. There's no ropes. There's there's just the two barbecue. Mm. Mm. And then the other thing I don't use, I didn't use um, native timber on that two barbecue. I went and bought some dowling from from Bunnings and used the dowling. Worked really well, but it was going to be burned. And I thought, oh, well, it's <laughs> you know, it's not a mouldy, mm. it's not a mouldy wood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've we've had. The corridor at the Bātauranga that you have and that you have shared is is rich. You know, not very many people actually get to sit down and have these kinds of corridor, and I really appreciate that we've been able to share these corridor today. In your seventy years of life, what's what is one of the richest lessons that you have learnt that you want to make sure that we know? Wow, that's a that's a <laughs> mammoth question. One. Awesome. <laughs> I won't hold you if it's more than one. I think one of the, the biggest things that I've had to learn and um, hold dearly to my heart is um, te reo Māori me ona tikanga. Mm. Because without having learnt that, I may not be where I am today. And to hold on to um, partnerships that have the same adventure, same passion, same thinking, 
because I don't believe that two people in partnership can do things when one is in their position. Do you understand what I mean? It's, it's not easy. If my husband and I didn't agree with going into the future with revitalising tikanga Māori or things that we could bring back really, really easily into our modern society, we then would have had difficulties. Because you see people today um, trying to recover things. They don't get there because, you know, I love the idea of being male and female is that you have two two energies working together and honestly it strengthens the way that you go into the future mm. and maybe if I didn't have a partner like Taru I may not be the person that I am today to stand tall to hold strong to those kaupapa that he left behind Who are one or some indigenous wahine that have inspired you on your journey? Well you know my, my auntie Te Puya and I was at school and uh, they said, you know, who who would you consider as your um, uh, model? And so, number one, it was Tepuya. And why Tepuya? Because my father said that she was an amazing woman. I never ever met Tepuya, nor did I read the book about Tepuya, but this is what my dad said about her that she was a strong woman, that she led Waikato. And if she didn't lead Waikato, things wouldn't be the way they are today. So she was a great leader. She was a great humanitarian. She had all those mokupunas that used to live at Whaka, at uh, Whaka, whatever it was, at um, <laughs> Wahia, and, and that she was my model. And I still do that today. I'm on my 37th foster child. So she was my inspiration for that. Mm. And then when my auntie died, I've been going, whoa, she's, she's really another model too. Even though she was so parky oriented she left me with the ethics of being mm. such a strong, um, strong woman holding on to the kaupapa that, you know, I've been taught. Mm. So those are my two models. I can't think of a male model. What brings me to my last part, I <laughs> and I actually like I want to come back for a part two and a part three of this corridor. So um, I might hustle you for that a little bit later. <laughs> I might uh, give you some kai, make you laugh, and then take you into the other room and convince you. <laughs> but my last part I is, what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? When I talk about the hope for our Indigenous women immediately comes to my mind of Rose Petty. Because mm. Rose Petty is in my program as well with the Kahutu Papaku, Kahufakateretu Papaku, as an inspiration to to um, me as a Māori woman who was ignorant to caring for Papatunuku. And she came here and she said to me, Nata, please take care of Papatunuku. I didn't know what Rose Petty was on about. I thought what she was talking about was she had seen me, our wairua, dig a big hold, hole in the ground over there with a digger and I put all the rubbish in there. Mm. 
And she came and said this, you know, take care of Papa Tūnuku. And so for me, I thought, shit, this is really, really scary. Spooky, in fact, that she said to me to take care of Papa Tūnuku and I just dumped a whole <laughs> lot of shit in the gut of, in the puku of Papa Tūnuku. And then... Um, Years passed by, and my husband died, and then I realised what she actually meant, take care of Papa Tūnuku. By that time, I'd learned not to abuse Papa Tūnuku by putting plastics into Papa Tūnuku, not putting the wrong, the right, you put the right clothes onto the tūpāpuku. Everything that you return to Papa Tūnuku is has got to be edible, consumable, that you can't... Um, you know, you can't put shoes and and plastic bags and mattresses into into Papatunuku. So, you know, if all of us wahine can take responsibility for looking after Papatunuku, because Papatunuku is um, the she is the the model for all of us as wahine Māori. When you think about how she has taken so much in the way of um, abuse from the whole world, and we call our people ourselves humanitarians, and I used to think that um, I was pretty good, but you know I'm better now at looking after Papa Tuanuku, and I think that's what I I would say to all of us wahine uh, Māori is to ensure that we look after Papa Tuanuku in the first place, because Papa Tuanuku not only provides us um, with sustenance, uh, there is more to that. I mean, we go back to Papa Tuanuku and death, we go, and when we um, are at birth, we we use Papa Tuanuku to bury our whenua, so you know. At the end of the day, look after Papa Tuanuku. I can't say that enough. And and really that came from Rose Peter. And uh, when she came here to Parihaka, I've, I've lived with that in my heart, is that if we all could take responsibility. You know, I'm a sick woman and bending over to do my murder is a real difficult thing for me to do. But do you know what? I make a little bit of effort to get out there to do my garden so that Papa Tūnuku can give me a feed. Mm. Um, yeah, what more can I say? And I just want to honour Rose as she lays there and mm. with her people at this time of the year as well. Mm. Well, I just want to... I thank you is not even the word. I don't even know what the word is, but I want to honour you for your time today, for the corridor that you've shared with us. Honour you for the mahi that you have been a part of, not only your influence in the health sector, your influence for improving the health and well-being of wahine Māori, but your influence in revitalising our tikanga, our systems, and not being afraid to do so mm. and being a rebel <laughs> being a rebel and doing so because what you've done is you've helped to influence those generations after you and I find it a real privilege to be able to sit here in your whare I acknowledge that I'm very privileged to be able to sit here in Korero with you today and I just want to thank you I, as you said I know you're not well 
And so for you to have given us this time today, it really means a lot. Mm. Um, I will be having more kōrero with you, I am mm. very sure. And uh, I'm very... I'm very moved by learning more about our practices around death and wanting to actually go on and, and learn more for my own whanau. So, thank you. Tēnā koe. Mm. Māori ora. Ana he waiata kia um, wakamutu tēnei wāhanga he wahine āmena waiata nō tōko hōrangatira. He maru ahi ahi kei muri Te maru awatea He paki aro i roi kei mua After the shades of darkness come the dusk of dawn Whilst before lies the shimmering glory of a fair day Kia ora. 